Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim Harris, pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church in the Overflow. And God bless you all. Welcome to you. Thank you for a leading and thank you for worshiping uh, with us this morning. Perry, Oklahoma, Pastor Brian, Church on the Square, we love you guys so much. We pray for you and rejoice in everything God is doing with you and, and among you. Uh, God bless you. Open your Bibles, everyone, to the book of Ecclesiastes. Starting a new morning series for the next four weeks entitled Everything Matters. Everything Matters, coming straight from the Old Testament book of, of Ecclesiastes. Now at night, we're going to be doing something different. At night, four weeks, we're going to be doing a study called The Circle Maker. We're going to do this in small uh, home Bible study groups. If you haven't signed up for a group yet, you don't even have to sign up. You can show up tonight, but Brother Warren at the end of the service will give you instructions for that. But please, please participate in a, in a home uh, Bible study group with The Circle Maker in the next four weeks. It's all about prayer, and, and I... Uh, I'm excited about this book, excited about what we're going to share as a congregation, and excited about what God will do when his people pray. Uh, we need to be in prayer. But for the morning Ecclesiastes, we're going to start this morning in chapter 2, uh, because you will be studying in the 10 o'clock hour today uh, passages from chapter 1. Carol Jarbo did a phenomenal job with uh, the small group Bible study lesson this morning that you'll study in the next hour. So I won't try to go over what she's going to go over. I'm going to try to move on to chapter 2, which is where we'll be. Ecclesiastes is very different from um, everything else in Scripture. There's just nothing like it in the Bible. And if you haven't read it, then, uh, then you're probably in, in for something special. Ecclesiastes, the title itself is kind of hard to say. It's really clumsy. Ecclesiastes, what does that sound like? What, what does that word mean? Uh, Ecclesiastes. We have words like a, a, a ecclesiastical, and uh, there's a, Old Test a New Testament word for the church called ecclesia. Well, what do you think Ecclesiastes, what does it remind you of? It's, it's a word that has typically to do with church or worship. And so understand that, that, that the name of the book, Ecclesiastes, is really from an Old, old Hebrew word that, that means preacher or, or teacher. So this is kind of like a church guy, a, a wise old church man, a preacher or a teacher. And uh, he's writing these words. He's actually sharing words of wisdom. This is considered wisdom literature for Old Testament scholars. Uh, but it's really rather amazing. Rarely in life do you find anybody as honest as the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes. And especially in the Bible, especially in a, in a, in a church, in, in a faith-based setting, to have anybody talk about what he's about to talk about. He's talking about life. Not church life, not ecclesiastical life. He's just talking about life life, real life. And what he discovers is amazing. Now, one of the phrases he'll use over and over and over, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, is the phrase, under the sun, under the sun. And, and understand, there's a very particular perspective that he adopts in order to teach us these lessons. It's an under the sun perspective. In other words, it's a worldview that just looks at what's down here. Now, as people of faith, as, as Christians, we never want to just look down here. We never want to just have a worldview that only sees what's under the sun, what is material. But this is what he does in the book of Ecclesiastes for the simple task of teaching us uh, what really matters in, in life. And, and that is why you'll find him continually saying, under the sun, under the sun, because that's where we all seem to live. Start you off, I want you to, uh, to, to take a look at, at a guy on the screen here. Uh, some of you will know him, some of you won't. You have to know who this guy is. This happens to be, uh, we'll just call him the man who has everything. How's that? He is the man who has everything. His name is 
Tom Brady, right? He's a football guy, and I don't do football. Tom Brady, because right before I came up, Matt Betts says, no, it's Peyton Manning, uh, just to mess with me, just to mess with me. Because uh, <laughs> I don't know the difference. I don't. Tom Brady, it's Tom Brady. He is quarterback for the New England Patriots. Uh, he's a man who has everything. In terms of sports, in terms of athletics, this is a man, whether you like him or not, whether you like the Patriots or not, because I don't know one team from another, but, but, but this is a man who has achieved uh, everything you could hope to ever achieve in, in sports and athletics. Uh, quarterback uh, for, for a Super Bowl winning team, I think, three times. He has three Super Bowl rings. It's just absolutely amazing. In terms of, of, of being athletes, uh, this is what lots and lots of men would aspire to be, but that's not all. I mean, in the process of, of playing a game with a ball, he's become a very, very wealthy man. Tom Brady now is a very wealthy man. He has more money than, than most people, than some whole towns will ever see in, in a lifetime. Uh, this is an, an incredibly wealthy man. If that's not enough to make you sick, he's really good looking. I know that's awkward because a man's not supposed to say that another man is good looking. Uh, but he is, man. He's really handsome. I mean, he's no Steve Cherry or nothing, but, but he's, a, he's, a, he's a really handsome guy. Uh, when he's not on the football field, you know, playing, playing ball, uh, GQ will have him model clothes in the magazine. You know, my old job. I mean, he is a, a fashion Model. I mean, it's like one of the best-dressed men in the United States. I mean, and on top of that, will you look what's beside him? That's his wife. It's his wife. And just to rub it in, it's, he has a wife with an unpronounceable name. Her name is like Giselle Bunchen Schnauzen or something like that. I don't even know. I guess her last name's Brady, or, but, but it's Giselle. Y'all know what she does for a living? You're not supposed to know. She's a Victoria's Secret, like a lingerie model. Now, I didn't know what Victoria's Secret was, being your pastor, but I asked Warren. <laughs> and Warren says it's better I don't know what, what, what she models. She's a Victoria's... <laughs> She's... <laughs> She's a Victoria's Secret model. I mean, you know, the wings. Just walking around the kitchen. You know, in, in the wings. This is this man's life. Would you trade places with him? All the men in the house say, no, I wouldn't trade places with him. But your wife is saying, oh, please trade places with him. Man. <laughs> your wife would trade you just like that, man. To, uh, no, she wouldn't. I don't think. <laughs> Tom Brady was interviewed on 60 Minutes a while back. Now, this was not supposed to be a spiritual interview. Uh, they were asking him questions about sports and about achievement, uh, but this is what he said. I'm going to read straight from the transcript from 60 Minutes, uh, June 2005. This is a Steve Croft interview, and uh, this is how it went. Steve Croft said this. He said, this whole experience, this whole upward trajectory, talking about his life, what have you learned about yourself? What kind of an effect does it have on you? Tom Brady says, well, I put incredible amounts of pressure on me. When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, okay, let those words sink in. When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything. Let me, let me stop. Who is ultimately responsible for everyone and everything? God. Yeah. Okay, I'll step back in. 
when you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, even though you have no control over it, and you still blame yourself if things don't go right, I mean, there's a lot of pressure. A lot of times I think I get very frustrated and introverted, and there's times when I'm not the person that I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? Steve Croft said, what's the answer? Tom Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. God, it's got to be more than this. Can you explain that to me? Can you explain to me how life could get better and better and better and a man could still feel worse and worse and worse? Well, it's the question that is asked and answered in the book of Ecclesiastes. How is it that life could get better and better and better, and yet you could continue to feel worse and worse and worse? Start with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, right where we pick up, the preacher, the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is going to do a kind of experiment. His experiment is, is, is life. He's simply trying to answer one basic question, and, and the question is, what is the point well, what is the point of all of this? And so this is what he does. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Okay, what's the question? What's the point of it all? So he says, maybe the point is pleasure. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine, and while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. I, I love that. While I was looking for wisdom, what did I find? Just foolishness. Just foolishness. The more I looked for wisdom, I just became a bigger fool. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves. Both men and women and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I'm, I'm sorry, you know what a concubine is? It's, it's like a sex slave. So, so this man has a harem. He has all of the women that, that he could possibly have. He has sex slaves, concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I'd take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. 
Verse 11. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, pointless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Jump to verse 17. So I came to hate life. Because everything done here under the sun is, is so troubling. Everything is meaningless. Like chasing the wind. Down to verse 24. I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and find satisfaction in, in work. But, but then I realized, I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him who can enjoy anything apart from him well, it is kind of pointless and let's be honest it's just kind of pointless there's a certain perspective in where that's very true. It's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's pointless. I was standing at a casket one day. I was preaching a funeral. I was standing by the widow, by the widow, who was burying her husband. He, he was in the box. And, and she's standing here, and she's so broken. And I was broken. I loved the man. I knew the man well. And, uh, neighbors are coming through, and, and that's always good because we know each other. We love each other. Woodburn's a great community. Standing here, and, and a man was in the line, and he came up, and he was wearing his overalls, and that's okay. I mean, this is Woodburn. He, he came up, and he took the widow's hand, and he'd known her for years. He was a neighbor. He lived close to her, and he said, I just want to tell you, I'm so sorry about your husband. I'm sorry about your loss, so, but uh, have you figured out what you're going to do with his tractor? <laughs> have you figured out what you're going to do with his tractor? What was this man thinking? Yeah, that tractor would look good in my barn. Yeah, if you figured out. I mean, you know, of course, that when you're in the box, it's going to be the same way for you. And you know, right, that you're going to end up in a box like everybody else. I mean, this is where the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, this is his starting point. This is what he realizes that, man, this life down here, if this is all that there is, it's pointless because, because it all ends in the same place. He recognizes that no matter what he can accomplish, no matter what he can earn, no matter what he can acquire, no matter who loves him, no, no matter what you can say about him, that he still goes to the grave and takes none of it with him. It, it, it just seems pointless. I, I mean, it is true for you. It is true for me. It, it's true for me. And it's hard to admit that. It's hard to think about the, the, very, the very truest thing in the world, which is that I could die before this sermon is over. I could die before this sermon is over. And the real tragedy of that is not that I'd be dead. It's that about half of you would just be glad to get out of church early. I mean, you can laugh if you want, but it's just kind of true. It's just kind of true. I'm really not a big deal. I'm really not. I'm not a big deal. I'm a big deal to certain people. I'm a big deal to my wife and my son maybe, but even them. You know, if I die today, my son would be sad, but he'd be thinking, I wonder what mom's going to do with dad's iPad. You know? And my phone. And Wade would take all the skinny ties and belts out of my closet. I mean, you know, I mean, and, and I'm telling you, if I died today, by Monday, Matt Betts would be in my office. 
he'd have my office. My desk, my computer, he would have his feet up. He would think he'd arrived. If I died, I mean, honestly, and y'all would have somebody in this pulpit next week. Next week, somebody would stand in my place. That's exactly how it goes. And my wife, who loves me more than anything, I know she loves me, but she's young and beautiful, and she would remarry. She'd marry somebody else. And he's going to be so ugly. (laughs) He'll be so ugly and so dumb. Just remember I said it when y'all are leaving the wedding. Don't say anything rude to Casey. But on the way home, you can say, Brother Tim said he'd be ugly. He's going to be so ugly. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know. That's just, that's real life. It's just life. And the things that I love and the things that I work for, I'm telling you, it's if it all ends like that, what, what's, what's the point of it? What, what's the point? I, I mean, life just seems so meaningless. That, that, that's the word we'll encounter over and over and over. It's just, it's just meaningless. So it, the preacher describes a kind of experiment that he does. Now, I don't know. He's a very wise man, but he's looking in hindsight he makes it sound like he did all of this on purpose, but, but I'm not sure. It strikes me more like a man who's just sort of from a different perspective telling you sort of the story of his life, and he understands now what he was doing, but I don't know if he understood it at the time. I don't know if, if any of us ever really understands what we're doing at the time. And the point I want to make with that is that simply that some of you are living this same experiment right now, but you just don't know that that's what you're doing. You're just doing what everybody else does. You're just trying to, to live your life, and you're sort of following in the same footsteps of everybody else who lives around you and the people who lived before you. I mean, this is just sort of what people do because, because we don't always consciously think that we're trying to figure this stuff out, but but honestly, in our lives, we're always trying to figure this stuff out. What is life about? What's the point of it? What's the point? So in the experiments, step one, step one for the preacher, he just decides to make his own personal pleasure the highest priority. That's what he says. I'm just going to make pleasure. I'm going to make my own personal pleasure my highest priority. And again, whether he did that intentionally, this is what I'm going to do, this is my experiment, my hunch is it's just what he did because it's what most everybody does. I mean, if life's going to have a point at all, surely it's got, it's got something to do with you. I mean, it's your life. And so surely the, the point of life is, is to have a good time, to, to have fun. And, and so the preacher sets out on this course where having a good time, just simply putting his own personal pleasure as the highest priority, this is how he lives. So the question he asks at the beginning of every day is, is what do I want to do? What would please me? Well, what's going to feel good to me? And he says that for a while, this, this personal pleasure, it's sort of laughter. What he craved was a good time. Well, what he craved was, was comedy. He wanted life to be a, a comedy. He just wanted to, to laugh and, and, and smile, and he wanted somehow to have a party going all the time. You know people like this? Do you know people like this? I, I do. At times, I've been this guy because I love to laugh. 
I just love to laugh. I would rather make people laugh than nearly anything else. I want to be the guy that when I walk in at the end of the day, I want, I want to make my wife's day. I want to make her smile. I just want to be that guy. I, I like it when we smile and when we laugh together. I like a party. I like to dance. I like to sing. I just love that. I wish that life could be this nonstop, just nonstop comedy where we could just all laugh our way through every single day. And the preacher says that that's what he tried first, just, you know, having a good time, making his own personal pleasure the highest priority. Just live as if life is some sort of comedy, like life is just this never-ending Saturday Night Live sketch where you just crack everybody up and everybody else is cracking you up. And <laughs> I mean, life is just great. It's great. But the problem with that is that it just turns out that life is not always a laughing matter. Life is not always a laughing matter. And there is nothing, nothing comical about living or dying without Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? There's just nothing comical about that. And if you've made it your aim to have a good time, then all of a sudden when, when, when the good time collapses around you, you're going to be devastated. Devastating. I, I made comedy. I made laughter the center of my life. I made my own personal pleasure the highest priority. Step one, make your own personal pleasure your highest priority. That's not going to go well. And the preacher understands that. He says, I found out that, that laughter is silly. That you really can't laugh your way through every day of your life. Because there's some days, if, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So step two, what's you do? After much thought, I decided to, to cheer myself. Understand, you, you can't necessarily laugh your way through every day. You're eventually going to need some help with that. So he says, I'm going to cheer myself with, with wine. He tries liquor. He tries alcohol because that's the only thing available to him. You have many more options for how to enhance your mood. But this is what he's talking about. So he's talking about step two, when, when putting personal pleasure as the highest priority didn't work out, I decided to keep the party going at, at, at any cost. I've got to somehow find a way to cheer myself. I, I need a mood elevator. And for him, it, it was alcohol. And for a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's alcohol. I know I'm preaching to a Baptist congregation, but I also know you people. I, I know you people. And some of you, you can't wait till I'm finished preaching so you can get out and have a drink. Now, nobody else knows that about you, and, and, and that's probably why you seem to be such a good Baptist. Nobody knows this about you, but, but you want to drink, and you love to drink. You would rather drink than, than, than eat. And there's some of us in this house, there's some of you in the sound of my voice, you really need alcohol. You need something to make you feel better because you don't like the way you feel most of the time. You don't like. Notice what he says. After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. Do you get that? Some of you can't stand what happens when you have to think. You, you don't like the way you feel when you step into a, a group of people and you have to be with people. You need something to help you through that. 
You don't like how you feel when you get home from work and you begin to feel like you could jump out of your own skin and, and your wife is on you and the kids are on you. You don't like that feeling. You need to find a way to cheer yourself. You're wishing, you're wishing with everything in you that they would legalize marijuana in the state of Kentucky because, baby, you're thinking that would help you. You understand? You don't like the thoughts in your own head. You don't like the way life feels. So you want to keep the party going at every cost, at any cost. You feel like you need help just to get through a day. And you're telling yourself that this is making your life better. You, you, you think you feel better. You actually think you are better. That's sort of the, the deceptive part of, of alcohol or, or anything else that alters your mind. You think you're doing better. You tell yourself that you'll, you'll do a better job at work. You'll concentrate better if you can just have a drink on the way to work. Okay, that's crazy. And everybody else knows it's crazy. And everybody else notices the difference in you, but you don't see the difference. You really think that you're funnier when you're drinking? You really think that you're more in control of things when you're drinking? You really think that you are somehow a, a bigger man, a woman more in control? You think you're handling things better, and you are drinking yourself, drinking yourself to death, and you don't even see it. Part of this, of course, is the way alcohol is marketed in our, in our culture. Let, let's be honest. Alcohol commercials, beer commercials, always make the alcohol look like the source of a really good time. Grab all the gusto that you can get. I mean, that's what they say. As if, if you add alcohol to whatever you're doing, you're adding something. You're adding gusto. Well, what in the snot is gusto? I mean, what is gusto? I mean, that's the point. What is it? It's, it's what you're lacking. That's the point. You don't know what gusto is, but you know you're missing something. Maybe it's gusto. Maybe you should go for all the gusto that, that you can get. Because obviously you ain't got no gusto. You see, that's why they market alcoholism in this way. They promise you gusto because what they're really giving you, I mean, if they told the truth in an alcohol commercial, I mean, if, if beer commercials told the truth, it would just be a, a commercial with some guy puking in a Cheetos bag. I mean, right? Seriously? You know, gusto. I mean, you understand? If they told the truth, that's what you get. But... But they're not telling the truth. Because you don't want truth. You don't want to know. You don't want to know. That's why they use someone like Tom Brady to sell you beer. They're not going to use the guy under the bridge in Bowling Green. You understand? You want the truth. That's why after your last binge, when you're reminded that you slapped your wife and locked her outside the house, you, you don't even understand that you could have done that. Yeah. That was just step two. Once you make your personal pleasure the highest priority, then you got to figure out some way to keep the party going because it is really, really hard. It, it's hard to keep a party going because life is not a party. It's just not a, a, a party. So when that falls apart, and it's going to fall apart, I mean, would you understand the preacher's telling you the truth here? It, it falls apart. After that, step three, he just goes for broke. 
I mean, now he's going to throw at it everything that he can possibly throw at it. He's going to throw at it everything. Notice the language used here. I'm going to start in verse 4. I also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. What does that sound like? It reminds you of Genesis chapter 1, does it not? It's, it's this idea that, that, that this man who has everything now, he sort of decides that he's going to just go for broke. He is going to throw everything at it that he can to try to see if something will stick, if something in his life could have a point. And it's almost like he tries to make himself God. That's the language that's used here. I, I made myself gardens and I filled them with fruit trees. I, I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. You understand? He lives in the desert, but he's now at the point where he can make it rain up in here. You understand? He can make it rain. He can irrigate. He can dig canals. He can bring water into the desert. You see, he's a man in control now. I bought slaves. You understand that? He, he had people under his control. And often this is sort of where we end up. When my personal pleasure is at the center of my life, the only way that my pleasure can, can be served is if I can control people. And so he has slaves, multiple slaves, men and women, and then the ones born in the house. You see, nobody, nobody gets out of his house free. I, I owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, had many beautiful concubines. I threw everything at this that I could. I, I threw everything to see what would stick. Man, he... He's acting like he's God. He's acting like he's God. There's a famous study, psychological study done in the 1950s by a psychologist named Milton Rokic at the Ypsilanti State Mental Hospital. He did an amazing thing. He was studying what, what he was calling the God complex. Now, this isn't like just somebody who acts like they think they're God. These are deranged, uh, just maniacal. These were men who all thought that they were God. They thought they were God or Jesus. And so Milton Rokic just thought, I wonder what would happen if I put them all together in the same room. I wonder what would happen if I took three guys who all think that they're God Again, these guys were very deranged, very, very sick men who honestly believed. They believed that they were God. He just wondered what would happen if you put three guys who all think they're God and made them roommates. And that's what he did. And then he sat back and studied them. Okay, it doesn't take a psychologist to know where this is going to go. What happens when people who are all self-centered and they all think that, that they're the creator of the universe, put them together, what do you think is going to happen? They are going to annoy each other. You understand? The doctor would walk in and say, uh, Mr. Smith, why is it that you feel like that you are the Messiah? Mr. Smith would say, because God told me so. And then the man next to him says, no, I didn't. I mean, seriously, that's what they would do. God told me I was the Messiah. No, I didn't. I said no such thing. You should worship me. This is what they did all day long, day after day after day. All they did was annoy and curse at each other. Kind of sounds like where you work, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like South Warren High School. 
Kind of sounds like last Thanksgiving with your family now, doesn't it? Everybody just annoying and cursing each other because when you have people who think they're God or who want to be God, when you have people who are so, so very insecure, dangling by this thread of pointlessness in their lives, they feel like they have to control everything, and that includes you. And they'll try to control you and try to manipulate every situation because understand, these are frightened, frightened people. It is frightening and devastating to be in the middle of your life and, and find yourself asking, what in the world is the point of this? God, there's got to be something else. There's got to be something else. So what's the preacher say? What's he say? Verse 11. Uh, New Living Translation says, as I looked at everything, as, as I looked at everything, the Hebrew word that he uses here is literally means to look in the eye. In other words, he got to a point, and, and pray that you get to this point. Pray with all your guts that, that you get to this point, that, that you would look your life in the eye, because that's what he does. I... I finally looked my life in the eye, everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, and it was all so pointless, meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. That's devastating. What do you do when your life gets better and better and better, but you keep feeling worse and worse and worse? You're saying, well, Brother Tim, I don't really, I'm not following this sermon altogether. I mean, I'm not all that happy in my life, but, but you know, if I'm going to be unhappy, I'd rather be unhappy and rich. Because that's how we think. It. I mean, we know, we know that money doesn't make you happy, but you're not happy now. And you figure, you know, if I'm going to be unhappy, I'd rather be unhappy and rich and unhappy and poor. I mean, you know, there's no prize to not have money. And what you think? Because that's what he says. When he's going for broke, he says, I, I got all the silver and gold that I could possibly. I, I just started trying to get wealthy. He was wealthy. You're wealthy. You're saying, Brother Tim, I'm not Solomon. Do you understand? This man had never in his life felt the glory of a roll of Charmin toilet paper in his whole life. You understand? He may be rich, but he's still using a corn cob. Do you know? He may be rich, but never in his life had he ever had air conditioning. I mean, yeah, he's the wealthiest man of his day, but he's still a caveman, people. This is the old days. Never in his life had he walked across the floor with shag carpet. Never in his life had he done his number two in the sup and pushed and flushed and watched it all disappear. Do you understand? He had nothing like what you have. The, the book says, I, I wanted music. Part of my, my last ditch of throwing everything around was, was just to try to, to get into music. So he hired musicians. Did you understand how rare that was in his day? You didn't have music. Everyday people didn't have music. That is so rare. It's so amazing. Never in his life had he downloaded a 99-cent song from iTunes. He thinks he's wealthy. He has no idea what kind of life that you would live. Never in his life had he gone to the mall and bought himself a new skirt with a purse to match. Do you understand? He thinks he has wealth. He had nothing like what you have. He had never ridden in a car. 
Never gone up to the drive up at Sonic and got a Butterfinger blizzard. You understand? He had never had any of these things. He just thinks he's rich. He had never met you. You have a closet full of clothes. He had never met you. Money and, and music and, and sex. I mean, yeah, it's about sex. He has concubines. He has sex slaves. That means he can wake up any day of the week and walk in and say, uh, I think I'm feeling like the three Asian triplets over there. I mean, that's the life that he lives. That's what he can have. Anything he wants. And, and at the point of that, he says, God, there's got to be something else. Why can't you hear that? Because he's not the first and he's not the last one to say it. Why can't you get this? That, that everything that you're running toward in your life, the, the money, the, the music, the, the sex, everything you're running after, your own personal pleasure, relationships to control people, everything you're running after, there's not going to be happiness when you get there. It's not going to be there for you. It's not going to make you happy. You'll get this promotion. You'll make more money. It will not add one teaspoonful of happiness to your life. It just won't. It, it won't. It can't. Why can't you understand that? Why can't we hear that? Because the sooner we could reach this point, the sooner that we could look our lives in the eye and understand it's not down here for me. It's not going to be down here for me. Meaning is not in all of this mess. It's not going to be here. So where in the world is it? What's it all for? If it's not going to make me happy, what's it for? If, if I can't take any of it with me, if none of it lasts, what's it for? If it's not for me, it's not for you, who's it all for? Good question. Now you're asking the right question. Verse 25. Who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to, say the words, those who please him. God gives pleasure, joy, God gives it. He's the source. Understand? He's the source. Money is not the source. Friends at school, popularity, it, 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 it's not the source. Get your face out of Facebook. It ain't there. It ain't there. God gives it. God gives meaning. God gives satisfaction. Who's it all for? It's all created for Him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything is created by Him and everything created for His pleasure. It's all for Him. This is my Father's world. It's not mine. 
It's not mine. And there's no ability to enjoy anything apart from him. This man was saying his prayers one morning. The house was quiet. His two-year-old little boy would often get up, but his mother had commanded him to stay quiet while daddy has his quiet time. So the little boy would always just stay back and play on the floor and be very, very quiet. He's a good boy, two years old. This particular morning, the man was praying. And uh, honestly, he was confessing his sins. That's a good thing. He was confessing his sins before God, and he was just feeling particularly empty that day and particularly in need of something from God. And he just said, God, you know what I need. You know what I need. So I don't even know what to ask for, but but God, I just, I I need, I I need something from you today. I need a touch from you. At at that very moment, very moment, this little two-year-old boy came over to him, and the man was in the middle of praying, and the little boy just took his hands, two-year-old boy, took his daddy's face in his hands, and he said, hi, precious one. Hi, precious one. He said it six times. Then never, ever had that two-year-old boy ever said those words to anybody. He had never had that done to him. But he came up to his daddy in the middle of prayers and said, Hi, precious one. Is it even possible? impossible that that little two-year-old boy was a mouthpiece for God at that moment. Maybe what that man needed more than anything else was to know, was to know that he was a precious one to God. Maybe what you need to know more than anything else in the world is that before the first star was ever hung in the sky, before the sun and the moon were put in their place, God already had fixed his delight on your soul. What if from all eternity God continues to gaze upon you and say, precious one, my precious one, what if all of this was not created for you? What if your pleasure is not really to be what you seek? What if truly there is nothing in this world to bring enjoyment apart from God? And what if the secret of life is not to pursue your own pleasure? Maybe the secret of life is not to go after the things that would bring you happiness, but what if the secret of life is truly to seek the pleasure of God? To know the pleasure of God, the pleasure that comes from God, and the pleasure that you'll find in God. What if truly, truly, life is not about putting yourself first and pleasing yourself, but what if your life is about pleasing God? Take it from the man who had everything. And at the end of that, he says in verse 17, I hated my life. I hated my life. Some of you at this very moment, that is where you are. That's where you live. 
you hate your life. You got stuff, you got people, you got food, and you hate your life. May I suggest to you why you hate your life? It is simply because there is no pleasure in life apart from Christ. There is nothing in this life worth anything outside of him. Do you want to know pleasure? Do you want to know happiness? Do you want to know what life is about? Then you must, must seek to know Christ. He alone can bring life to your life. Let's talk to him. Jesus, I just pray to you today on behalf of people in this house, in the overflow, all those who might hear the sound of my voice. God, there are people sitting in church just feel like an empty shell, Lord, an, an empty soulless kind of body, oh God. There are people who hear the scripture read and it's like we're reading out of their diary, Lord. There are people in this room right now that are, have made their own pleasure the very center of their lives and they hate their lives. God, there are others that are still in such a state of denial, Lord, that they continue to look for other ways to uh, enhance their mood, to add something to the emptiness of their lives. And God, I just ask you to show us the, the truth of the matter, which is that nothing, nothing ever can fill us up until you come in and fill us up. Lord Jesus, help us to look our lives in the eye today and help us, Lord, to listen to the truth of Scripture and help us, Lord, every single one of us to, to find meaning, Lord, the only meaning that there is, the meaning that you give our lives, the meaning that comes to us through, 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 through Christ, the meaning that comes to us when we see God in the flesh hanging on the cross. Jesus, you've already said that the only way to find life is to give it up. That, that if we want to live life, somehow it has to do with taking up our own cross and, and, and following after you, the, the, the way of the cross, Lord. We, we continue to try to look for another way to life, another way to live. God, I, I, I pray, I pray, Lord, for the person in this room who is addicted I pray for the person in this room who is lost. I pray for the person in this room who is suicidal. I pray for the person in this room, Lord, who finds everything in this life tasteless and joyless and empty. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you fill this room? Holy Spirit, would you come in and fill this room and fill our hearts? our minds, our mouths with praise. We don't want to waste this life, Lord. We want to live it for your glory. We want to live it for your pleasure. We don't want to seek what pleases us, Lord. We want to live to please you. We want to live to please you. So God, 
Call our names. Call us out. Tell us that we're precious to you because of Christ. Hold our heads in your hands. Help us to know that you alone are God. That you alone can save our lives. Fill this place. Fill every empty heart. In Jesus' name, amen.